Hello, I'm Alex Sloan and thank you for joining me on this series of journeys around the Australian National University for the Constitutional from ANU Law. For our last walk, I'm thrilled to be led by one of the ANU Law's most distinguished alumni and a senior member of the ACT Judiciary. Earlier this year, Justice Richard Rashorgi SC retired from the bench of the ACT Supreme Court after a career that spanned four decades. He began in litigation in 1976, but before that, he was a student right here at the ANU Law School. Your Honour, great to be having a walk with you. It's my pleasure, indeed. Thanks, Alex, indeed. 1976, you graduated. I did. I'd started um, in 1966 because after school I went to New Guinea as a volunteer um, which was a kind of gap year before you had gap years and I was an 18 year old teacher in a high school in near Popendetta um, and then I came back and wanted to go back to New Guinea which was a beautiful place and do good things and you know all those terrible things that we think about and you know before we actually have a bit of consciousness about what all that's uh, doing and my father said well if you really want to and these were in days when you listen to your father you've got to get a profession and then you can do it because you'll have something to walk fall back on. He, of course, had been through the Depression and understood. And, of course, profession meant medicine or law. He was a doctor, but I couldn't stand the sight of blood. So law. And I started at the ANU. Yeah, so in 1966, to be in Papua New Guinea, that's before independence. 65. 65, sorry. Yes. 1965, to be there, and that's yes. before... Before indep independence, yes. Yes. And it was interesting. I mean, I'm, I guess I would now, looking back, describe myself as a curious person. I always liked to find what things were going on and how things were working and so on. And I got right into it and thought, you know, we're doing better than we did in Africa, we colonials. It wasn't much of a benchmark, was it? <laughs> no, when I look back, it certainly wasn't. But it was fascinating. And looking back on it now, I, I can see a lot of the mistakes that we made and, and so on. But it was an eye-opening experience for me. It gave me a real commitment and passion about overseas development and the contribution that developed countries have a moral obligation to provide to assist in what are really often dire circumstances. That wasn't true in New Guinea. I mean, there were, when you look back on it, there was a lot of kind of colonial junk about that. You know, they were generally perfectly happy in lots of ways, but realistically um, they they couldn't have fitted into the modern world unless they had some skills and some understanding and I you know and some support I, I think that's what that was about. How much do you think it, that experience then informed you for the rest of your life? Well I suppose it gave me two things one is as I say a passion about overseas development and I got really involved in a lot of things, community aid abroad, action for world development, then uh, CAA became Oxfam and so on. Um, and also, more recently, I was chair of Australian Volunteers International. So I um, was able to 
kind of give back in that way at that time and I support financially and I support morally and socially um, what's done over there um, and have of course a passion about New Guinea which which you'd understand. Well I'm just about to say because you know Justice Jeffrey Miles yes. was also an early volunteer a, in Indonesia in wasn't he? In Indonesia yes he Herb Feith um, professor of Monash University started a volunteer graduate scheme in Indonesia and Jeff Miles was one of the early uh, participants in that and uh, he and I didn't really understand that until a few years ago when we met at a volunteer function and he said what are you doing here and I said what are you doing here and we kind of um, clicked and that was fantastic yeah. When you made that decision as you say you know your father saying come on yep. knuckle down yep. young lad um, why law you, you say well, medicine you couldn't do medicine and was it kind of the two choices at the time? That was really the two choices I suppose also I mean law made sense uh, in, a, in a way because I'm extrovert uh, you know gift of the gap a bit theatrical, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so law seemed sensible. It, it was also something that didn't flow on directly from high school. And having spent a year away, I felt that I didn't want to be in have, having lost a, a year to start something fresh. You know, um, my peers would have been in second year English or second year history or whatever. So I picked up psychology and philosophy for the arts and, and law. Did it grab you right away? Law didn't actually. My confession is that I failed first year legal history which is fascinating because I now love legal history. I, in fact, I think I'm the only judge in the Supreme Court at the moment that quotes the pre-18th century cases in the English reports um, from time to time because I have this view that the common law is the law that judges are made over the centuries and it's nice to identify where it came from and what the judges in those days said um, because that's part of the continuity of what we're on about. Often to fail something wakes you up to it, doesn't it? Yeah, true, that's true. Um, but then in my final year I had to do a supplementary exam in practice and procedure, which again is one of my passions. It probably did wake me up in that way, but, but after a while it did grab me. I, mean, I can remember administrative law with Professor Harry Whitmore, one of the icons, one of the um, leaders in administrative law in Australia, was fascinating and I loved that. Didn't do particularly well because I used to, as I still do now, be a bit of a perfectionist and I'd study and study and study one thing and forget that there were 20 things that you had to learn for the exam but you know here I am I, I somehow survived. What did you think you'd be? What kind of lawyer did you think you'd be? I thought I'd be a criminal lawyer. Um, I'd be the knight on the white horse saving the oppressed from the um, harassment of um, the state and police officers and you know all that kind of stuff and then I became later on DPP of course <laughs> which is weird but the first job I got was in a commercial firm and I did commercial law which was the furthest from my expectations that I could possibly have thought um, and, and I loved it. It was, it was interesting again because you know there were problems, there were issues, um, I'm curious, I like to you know work out what's going on and so I became a bit of an expert in company law and in trusts and so on and 
Um, I now struggle with, uh, you know, seniors' moments to remember all that good stuff. And it's, of course, all changed since I became more a, a litigator. Just sitting here on the campus, what, as a student here, what, what was it like? Was it heady? Was it... it was. I mean, those were, of course, the, the great student days. 68, there'd been the great revolution in the students of, of uh, Paris and, and France more widely and so on. Um, and the big thing was student involvement in uh, university government. Um, and we were lucky and unlucky. We were lucky because Sir John Crawford was the Vice-Chancellor at that stage, a, a great man, minute, you know, one of the gnomes um, uh, of, of the time. And, of course, the other gnome, uh, or one of the other gnomes, Nugget Coombs, was the Chancellor. And they actually accepted that that was appropriate. So we didn't have to strive too hard, but there was a lot of pushback amongst the other academic staff, but uh, they encouraged us and we got a position on university... Well, I think we already had a position on university council, but then the president got an additional uh, position on university council. We got membership of faculties, students on faculties. We got faculty education committees and... Uh, it was great. And then, of course, we had the two great things of the Vietnam moratorium and the uh, anti-apartheid uh, stuff. And so they were great, great times in that sense. They were times when you were exploring your views of the world. I mean, I can remember having been to a private school, um, which taught me very well, I have to say. Uh, perhaps that's me, I don't know, but it was, it was great. I have fond memories of school, although I was at university for longer than I was at any school. And I um, came back from New Guinea and I can remember arguing viciously at a party that of course we were right to be in Vietnam, that of course there was a do domino theory. And I think back now, I'm thinking, how stupid can you be? But it soon raised my consciousness and I became... It was a bit challenging for my father, who was Major General um, and, uh, and a staunch member of the RSL and so on, but we had interesting... Um, times. What about apartheid? I mean, that was a huge one. It was, and we had this massive day of rage where we marched to the Manuka Oval where the uh, Springboks were playing and there were, you know, arrests and so on. Again, partly perhaps Canberra, but we had quite a good relationship with the police. Ron Dillon was a sergeant, I think, at the time, and he and the Students Association Secretary Di Riddell, another icon of the ANU, uh, had a good relationship and we'd go and talk to them and say this is what we're going to do and Ron would say well that's what you can do and we'd say no no we're going to do this and we'd kind of work it out. We wouldn't necessarily knuckle under but we wouldn't necessarily be in their face just for the sake of being in their face. So do, do you think campuses seem tame now? I don't know that I'd say tame but they certainly don't have the political energy um, and I think that's really because of the pretty sad state of education funding that I, I think. Uh, I mean I was enormously lucky. I came from a relatively wealthy family, but I got a Commonwealth scholarship, and so I didn't actually understand that universities charged fees because it just didn't cross my mind, you know, that there were some people who actually paid for their education. Now, of course, they have to mostly pay for their education 
Xbox facto through Hex and so on, but also to live. Many people, I'm told, have full-time jobs while they are studying full-time at university. So no wonder there's no, you know, day of rage and so on. And I wonder which country ever went backwards by investing in education? Uh, none. I can't think of any, really. And yes... There is no doubt that lawyers and doctors and architects and engineers get a good uh, reward for their effort. They are in the top, you know, I'm probably in the top 1% and I, I'm well aware of that. Of, You've just of been honoured for your philanthropy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that's one of the moral obligations. But what would the world be without doctors and lawyers and engineers and architects and so on? There is a public good in that. And the economy, well, perhaps lawyers don't do all that much directly for the economy, but we do spend and buy lots of books and so on. I think education is a real driver in the economy. And I think we are actually almost oppressing our students. You spoke, actually, when you were honoured um, recently for your philanthropy, you spoke beautifully about the importance of the arts. Yes, well, that was actually where I was probably headed before I went to New Guinea. I actually applied for NIDA, but I'm, I'm too wooden. I, I wouldn't make a good actor. But I've always been passionate about the arts. When I moved to Canberra, the headmaster said, uh, would you like to produce a school play? And I thought, wow, yes, had no idea what school player do went and spoke to Alan Harvey at Canberra Rep and he said why don't you do Charlie's aunt so he did Charlie's aunt and of course I cast my younger brother in one of the roles and his best friend in another role and we did a wonderful thing and ever after that I have been passionate about the arts and theatre especially but but the whole range of the arts because it seems to me that the arts is really what makes us human you know the birds are beautiful Dogs are great, but when you look at them, you know that they're not self-aware, there's not a consciousness of their beauty and so on. And the arts gives us insight into ourselves, it allows us to explore what it means to be human and to be alive and, you know, to be part of the world. And so, uh, yes, passionate, I guess, is the word. I did have a 17-year-old say to me the other day, you know, no one underlines this. And I wonder which careers advisor at school says, go into the arts. <laughs> well, I suppose the problem is, see, although I express this passion, and I hope I've made some contribution, mostly as a you know, board member and behind the scenes and that kind of stuff, but again, we pay our artists abysmally, and why would you invite someone who is passionate to go into a profession where they would be struggling, they would never earn enough money to retire on other than the pension? I think it's terribly sad. I'd love to be, um, even though I'm top 1%, I'd love to be Gates um, so that I could establish, you know, a billion dollar foundation uh, so that our emerging artists could actually practice their arts without having to struggle and, you know, get into hospitality at the same time. Or be part of the push to say to a community, you should reward your artists, yeah, we need absolutely. them. absolutely, absolutely. Well, I've always been that. I've always been that. <laughs> So when you said if you had that acting 
Hong Shan, you yeah. thought that was your first love. Yeah. When you were studying law, did you think about the bench and, you know, rumpole no. and all that? No. Theatricality? <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't think I did. I Again, I don't kind of plan the future too much. I get a bit immersed in the present, and that's a danger because sometimes you should stand back and look a bit more widely. When I write my judgments, as I say, I go back to the 17th century. I quoted, I think, a 15th century case the other day and was not proud, but, you know, it was appropriate. But perhaps I go too far sometimes, and it tends to be the instant rather than the future. So I don't think really until I became an advocate, a senior advocate, that I really thought, mm, perhaps the bench. I was happy doing what I was doing, being in interesting cases. Uh, again, timing is, is great. At the time um, when the High Court had just moved to Canberra, people wouldn't come down just to take the judgment because, you know, that was expensive and you'd be in the court for five minutes. So I had almost uh, probably the largest high court practice around because we were a firm that had agency uh, connections throughout Australia and when a judgment was being taken in those days, you expected counsel to be there and they'd send me over and I'd take the judgment. It was, you know, nothing really um, just to take the judgment except once once they said to me now what about costs and of course I knew nothing about this case I knew nothing about costs and so on uh, I struggled through I think I said we'll um, put in written submissions in seven days or something but to be in the high court to be in the new high court and then as time went on I actually appeared a number of times and so on which was which was great what do you think of the architecture of the building? That was so controversial at the time, wasn't it? Gaz Mahal, as they call it, yes. Look, it doesn't grab me from the outside, uh, except that, you know, it's tall and the, the front is uh, dominating in, a, in an appropriate way, but the inside is, is great. It's lovely to have natural light coming in to at least some of the courtrooms, the main courtrooms, and the accommodation for councils, pretty good. So, you know, it's a good building, much better than our Supreme Court, but our new Supreme Court's going to be fabulous. <laughs> you can't help when you walk into that high court. It does make you start to think about the rule of law. Tell, tell us your thoughts on that. Go take us higher there. <laughs> Can I start with a little anecdote? As a radical at university, you know, we occupied the chancery and we did marches and, you know, all sorts of things. I suppose in some ways I've become a conservative, not, I hope, so much in my politics, but I, I can see traditions and, and so on. There's become a bit of a slackness in courts these days where people will say, good morning, Your Honour, and I don't think that's appropriate because this is a really serious matter it will always be a serious matter, but particularly in crime. And it's, it's a formal matter because it is actually part of government. You know, it is one of the three, you know, separated powers of government. And it's the only one that's really separated because, of course, the executive, which is the cabinet and the public service, uh, the cabinet's all in government. And so we don't kind of understand. And that means that the real strength and the real interest is in what's going on in parliament and the public service which is kind of connected to that and we're kind of left out on a limb and so it's a pity but I think um, I look around the world and I think 
how lucky we are to have a strong independent judiciary backed up by a strong independent legal profession. Um, uh, we don't get it always right. I mean, think of that terrible decision in Northern Territory, the young man who pulled out of a plan to murder someone and nevertheless, because he actually hadn't told the police about it and tried to stop it, um, was sentenced to, to life imprisonment because there was no alternative. I mean, here, perhaps that is still murder in, in the technical sense, but the court would have a discretion to say your degree of culpability, your, your wrongness for that was much smaller. And, and the judge then has the opportunity to actually deliver a level of justice which isn't mandated by political considerations, is just, you know, what the law says, which is why I like to go back in the history of the law to see, you know, what the wisdom of the judges over the years has shown is appropriate in these circumstances. So the rule of law is so important. I mean, think of what it would be like if we had the rule of law in the Philippines you know, or in, in Iran or places where people are oppressed. I mean, they're treated like ants. You know, we step on a few ants and we say it doesn't matter because there are a million more, more of them. People get slaughtered for political power reasons rather than because of their culpability themselves. And that's the difference between the rule of law and oppression. When you said... People say, good morning, Your Honour. What's the correct address? <laughs> May it please the court, I appear for X. <laughs> I know, look, I'm a bit, um, am I allowed to say, a bit anal retentive on these kind of things? But there is a, uh, a decision in New South Wales which, which makes the point quite eloquently and says this is a formal situation and by that kind of informality... One of the other things is the look of the case and if the offender or the accused hasn't been an offender until he's pleaded guilty um, sees the prosecutor who probably has been in the court you know, many, many times getting chummy with the judge what do they think about that? Again, as I say, I'm perhaps a bit precious in some ways but often between the bench and the bar table we have a joke you know, and it's our workspace, you know, we're human beings. But I always bear in mind that there is, in criminal cases, not so much in civil cases, criminal cases, there's someone looking by whose life is at risk, fortunately not death penalty sense. And so I usually just say, I hope you understand that we're human beings, we work together often, we have a bit of a joke. That doesn't mean that your case won't be treated seriously. It's a serious matter. I understand how serious it is and you will get the justice that I think you deserve. And just to little things to make people feel that they are getting a fair go, uh, it will be a fair go, is so important. As a journalist, I used to be horrified at being too chummy with politicians. Like you have yeah, to have a yeah, very clear yeah. line about... How can, you, how can you really challenge them? How can you do a lease sales and if you're too close to them? I mean, it's really difficult. Got to tr it? Talk truth to power. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> and sometimes uh, 
barristers, advocates have got to got to tell me I'm wrong, and they've got to tell me they really think I'm wrong. And if they're if they're too chummy, that can be quite difficult for both of us. That doesn't mean that I don't have very good friends, and I'm very blessed. I have some great friends in the legal profession, which I think is by and large a really good profession in Canberra. In your speech at the ANU Alumni Awards, in which you were named Philanthropist of the Year, you spoke about what you would see when a defendant walked into your courtroom. Can you tell me about that? I think the two things I see are, first of all, a human being. One of the things that I loathe is people being stereotyped, particularly too quickly. Um, you know, they're human beings with their frailties and their foibles, but their strengths and their entitlement to be human beings. Um, and I think also of people who often are not necessarily malicious. There are some people who are really malicious. There are horrendous things that happen. I had to sentence a man to 30 years imprisonment for a murder of his wife where he stabbed her 57 times. And that's horrendous. And he showed no insight into what he's done and no remorse. And that's awful. But he's still a human being. And he's entitled to be dealt with as a human being with courtesy. I call them Mr or Ms or Mrs or Miss if they want because I think they're entitled to that um, I was taught that by John Kelly, one of our great former judges, where you just give them that. That doesn't mean that you go weak on them. If he needs 30 years, he gets 30 years. Um, if she needs, uh, you know, a time in jail um, rather than uh, just a slap on the wrist, then that's what they get. The justice still is important, but they're entitled to be treated with respect. They're not scum. They're not rack bags. They have done really bad things or they've done things that there for the grace of God go I. I mean, we all drive. We all could have a momentary detention and kill someone on the road. That doesn't make us scum of the earth. And when you hear criticisms of the courts and of judgment of going too soft, soft on yeah. crime, yeah. What, what do you say? <laughs> I find that really difficult. And in my, in my speech um, on my retirement, um, I did speak about this. And I think, by and large, sentencing in Australia is pretty fair and pretty OK. I don't think it's too lenient. In some places it's tougher than others, and I think probably we're not as tough as New South Wales, for example, and that's been acknowledged and, and so on. But I don't know that we can break out of some of the stereotypes that we have about what sentencing is about um, and and really understand what's at stake. Sometimes there has to be punishment. You just have to tell people that they've done the wrong thing. It's really bad and you've got to be punished. But sending people to jail for a long, long time has downsides too. You institutionalise them, they will inevitably come out unless it's a life sentence and they're very rare even in tough jurisdictions. Um, they'll come out and their capacity to actually be a part of the community is stunted, perhaps irrevocably stunted, and that does no good to the community. You can't, as I've said on occasion, no punishment that the court can impose can bring back a loved one who's deceased through a road accident or a, um, an industrial accident or um, a crime. Um, that can't do that. It Hopefully there's some closure in some severe sentence 
but I suppose because I'm a Christian, I don't believe in a tooth for a tooth or a life for a life. Um, I don't think that helps anyone. And I think sentencing is about acknowledging the crime, acknowledging the victim's pain, acknowledging that there are victims and that they've been hurt, um, and putting a sentence that makes clear what the rules are, that's the criminal law, what the rules are, what you do and what you can't do, and giving some hope for the community and for the offender that they can reintegrate at some stage into the community and not reoffend. So there's a real belief there that... Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's easy to say you're hopeless, you're irrevocable, and sometimes I give people a chance and they spit in my face. I, I had a young man who was a druggie, he'd done a large number of burglaries um, and he was obviously well addicted and I gave him a chance to go to Karalaika, one of our great drug rehabilitation places and in two days he was back because he'd, he'd been using drugs and I said, oh, gave you the chance, sorry over to jail. I had an armed robber who went to Karalika. He graduated after 12 months as the best in the class. Um, I gave him, he'd already spent about 12 months in jail before going that and I said you don't need any more time in jail. A long good behaviour order or parole period, no good behaviour order, so that he had to you know behave and he was at risk at all that time. Um, he's been pretty good. He hasn't been perfect, um, you know, he's human, but he's been pretty good. I regard that as a success, you know. He's now working, he's got a job, so he's contributing to the community. He's not on drugs anymore. He's, it's great. You referenced your Christianity there. Yep. You must have seen and heard stories that have just absolutely shocked you to the core, broken your heart. At, at this stage of your life, how does it make you feel about humans and what we're capable of? Uh, it, it's depressing, and there are really horrific things that happen, and not just in Australia, of course, overseas. I balance that, I suppose, with the number of people who do have acts of kindness, uh, and, and they don't need to be big. I mean, what a blessing for someone who lost their wallet to find that it had been handed into Belconnen Police Station. Little acts of kindness like that, I, I think, give you some comfort. Just on the bad, though, and I know you've been a, a staunch champion against domestic violence. Yes, yes. Well, that's one of the really bad things. And I was really proud when I was Director of Public Prosecutions to be part of a whole-of-government process, a coordinated process, to deal with the criminal justice side of domestic violence and do it properly and better. We still haven't got it right. Um, there's still a hell of a lot of it around. And it's so sad because power and greed and ambition and so on um, are terrible things. And that capacity to think that you have power over another person and you use it by being violent to them is just awful. I think it's one of the real tragedies and at last we're talking about it. I mean the police used not to deal with it because we're just a domestic, it's between the, the husband and the wife. The lawyers used to think that rape in marriage was okay. I mean 
I'm not picking on anyone. We we all covered it up. You know, the church covered it up. Mm. We're moving away from that. But we have a long way to go. And uh, again, we come back to a theme that you talked about earlier, education. Our schools need to teach kids about respect for other people and that there aren't baddies and goodies. There are people who do bad things and who do good things. If a young, speaking of education, a student came to you and said, I'm thinking about studying law, what what would you ask them? (laughs) Or what would your advice be? (laughs) Well, I'd, I'd ask them why they wanted to do it. Um, and if they said they wanted to make a lot of money, I'd say, well, you may or you may not, and, you know, so be it. If they say, I want to help people, I'd say, think about that, because it is a helping profession, but there are opportunities where you don't get into the down and grungy. I mean, there are lots of people who help wealthy people, um, and that's fine, they're people too, and so on. I'd say you've got to be committed. It's almost a marriage. It's a very hard taskmaster, but it has enormous rewards. It's got intellectual rewards. It's got human rewards. It can have financial rewards. Um, It can have status rewards um, in the community, and it opens up other options. But I guess I'd also say... Unfortunately, these days, a lot of people who study law never get a chance to practice because we're producing more law law graduates than there are places to actually practice law. But a legal education is so... I mean, I know as a journalist, you always look to my colleagues who had a law degree as well. Yeah, look, that's true. I think it can be very helpful, particularly in the kind of government political area and so on, which is why there are far too many lawyers in politics, I suspect. But but also, I mean, other things can can be really good. And one of the things that I think is really good, which wasn't as popular when I was studying law was the dual degree. So you do something else, economics. I think it's really good to do some liberal arts. I I found philosophy great. It helped me think through real problems and try to put them in a logical order and, and sort them out and so on. Psychology is great. History is great. To give you some exposure to humanity, um, which is what lawyers are dealing with, even though in your studies you you can put them to side for one thing we study old cases and we forget that those cases are not just the words on the paper or the droppings of judges they're human lives at stake law students can get a little bit um, narrow about the law and forget it's about cases. They get out and they get into the legal practice and they forget that most cases are one on the facts, you know? Not the smart law that you creatively think the High Court might one day come down on. It's the story that your client, the human being, has told. You've kept up a long association um, with this university and now um, with your retirement from the bench, what do you hope to achieve here? Uh, Well, I would like to have some ongoing um, and more built-up association with a stronger association with the university. Um, I was here for longer, as I said, I think earlier, longer than I I was in one school, in primary school, and different school, in high school, and I was here longer than for either of those periods, and this was when I was growing up and uh, maturing and so on. So I've, I've got a real passion for my alma mater and I'd like to 
give students some of the thoughts that I've had, some of the opportunities that they have and to mix with them. They're so enthusiastic, they're so smart, they're much smart. I'd never get, as we say, I'd never get into law school these days. <laughs> Just finally, Ref Shorgi, the name. <laughs> it's originally Danish. Okay. If you look at me, tall, dark, hand, uh, tall, blonde, handsome, Viking. Yeah. yeah, yeah. My great great grandfather came out as a ship's captain in the gold rush times. Arrived in Melbourne, so the family history goes. All his crew went off to find gold, so he decided he'd stay, and that was how the family started. And is yeah. that the correct pronunciation? Shorgi. Yeah. Well, in it's interesting. In I went to a conference in Copenhagen. And I handed over my registration to the hotel clerk and he said, oh, Mr. Reeve Salger. And I was about to say, no, Rev Shorgin. And I thought, he probably knows better than I do how it's properly to be pronounced. Because <laughs> people have struggled with it over the yes, years, haven't they? they? Have. <laughs> yes, Rev, Rev Doggy um, and Rev Shaggy and all sorts of things. When I struggle in court with a name that's, that's a bit more difficult, I say, I hope you'll forgive me, but I, I experienced that myself. But it was a good decision by your ancestor because... Yeah, absolutely. We're a great family. I mean, I can remember um, going back to university days, we put in the first condom vending machine in the University Union. At the time, that was prohibited under the Pharmacy Act of the ACT. At the time, the chief bureaucrat administering the Pharmacy Act was my father. Wow! So we had this question of whether father would prosecute son for selling condoms outside a pharmacy. Um, and I, when people asked me that, I said, well, we used to have um, interesting conversations over the breakfast table. <laughs> but it didn't ever come? It didn't ever come, no. And I'm pleased to say, as my father, I think, would acknowledge, sometimes the wisdom of youth is a good thing and the Pharmacy Act was changed. <laughs> Your Honour, it's been an absolute pleasure. Just sitting here too, just, I think, finally, the role of the ANU, Canberra still struggles to have the respect and the love of all of Australia like you and I love it. But do you think the ANU has, is part of, you know, the growth of our reputation? Uh, I think so. I mean, the ANU is one of the leading Australian universities with connections all over the world, um, and that makes us a destination for lots of people. And they come, and it is a beautiful city still. I, I think ANU is a gem um, for Canberra, and it's certainly been a really valuable and important part of my life. Thank you so much.